Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking you now to come and work in our hearts and in our church what this text lays before us, that you would work a deep peace vertically, that we would be reminded that we have peace with God, and that we would relish that peace and rejoice in that peace, and that that vertical peace we have would flow out, especially in this local expression of your church, with peace among us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. So maybe over the past few years you've been like me and you've wondered uh, as a church, you know, what holds us together? You've wondered that because there's been a lot of things over the past few years flying apart <laughs> at, at rapid speeds, right? We, we live in a world that's just full of division and fracturing and divisiveness. We're actually discipled by a bunch of places and spaces that we all give a bunch of time to to divide over various issues, right? You could pick your issue, it could be politics, it could be racial issues, it could be a conglomeration of a bunch of things. But all of us, maybe I'll put it this way to kind of help you get in on what I'm saying. All of us have been in situations in the last two to three years where someone has said something that makes you nervous about what would happen if you admitted you thought something very different, right? You've been in that situation. <laughs> oh, we see that different, what would happen if I said something about it? Certainly none of us would likely describe the last two or three years in our society or even maybe in, in church life as mainly peaceful, just been peaceful and happy. <laughs> so what holds us together as a church? What brings us peace together as the people of God? And even though this might sound kind of like the Sunday school answer where this text is going to go, is it's going to say, it's going to make the claim that our vertical peace with God has brought us into horizontal peace with one another. Our vertical peace with God demands our horizontal peace with one another. And over the last few years, a lot of times we've gone, yeah, I still believe that, but I don't care so much about that right now. And this text will just say, that's not possible. That's not possible. It's going to say that the peace we have with Jesus flows out of us and into a peace with one another because there's one Savior, one cross, one body broken for sins, one spirit, and one people being built into a holy dwelling place for God. Now, I think, I think if I went around and asked you or asked myself, if we were having a conversation and I said, isn't it true that what's most true about us in Jesus is the most important thing about us. What would you say? Yes. <laughs> what's most true about me is what's most true about me in Jesus Christ. And so the question this text begs, it begs is, will we live like it's most important? Will we believe it's most important to the point that it changes how we treat other people? Will we live at peace because of the peace we have in Jesus? Or will we live as if what unites us is not quite as important than what would divide us. So let's dive in here. 
Point number one, far off foreigners from Christ. Verses 11 to 12. Paul says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is really made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. One thing Paul loves to do is remind his readers where they were so they can see the beauty of who they are, right? So he's always looking forward to the coming of Christ, telling them to set their hope there, and he's always looking back and saying, remember who you were so you can feel the majesty and the power and the unbelievableness of who you are. And here, the reason he's reminding him of that is that Paul is dealing with the biggest period of division there ever was in the church. This time where Jews and Gentiles were trying to coexist after years of animosity animosity to become the church of Christ. Mainly animosity from the Jews towards Gentiles who want to become in, but also, right, a lot of animosity from the Roman Empire towards the Jews. This years and years of animosity, and now they're supposed to be a church. (laughs) They're supposed to come together and be one church. So believe me when I say their differences ran deeper and longer and broader than any differences you probably have with anybody else sitting in this room. So we just walked through Genesis together as a church and we saw the origin of the Israelite people, right? We saw God establish a covenant with Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. And when we left them, we left them in Egypt. So if you've been in church for a while, you know what happened in Egypt. They were eventually enslaved, then rescued through the Exodus. God made a covenant with them at the mountain there in the writing of the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws that we know as the Mosaic Covenant. And that whole pattern, that whole story of redemption, led to a people that was set apart set apart to be holy and show God's holiness to the nations that the nations might come and worship, right? If you read Leviticus, there's a lot of blood, (laughs) a lot of sacrifice with those holiness laws and a sacrificial system to atone for sins. And all of that, the Old Testament tells us all of that was pointing towards a day when the one true offspring would come. The Messiah would come, right? This blessed one would come and be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, the one to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. In fact, even the reality of circumcision was meant to point to the fact that their hearts needed to be circumcised, changed, so that they could trust in God and ultimately trust in the hope of a coming offspring a coming Messiah that would save them from their sins once for all. So all of that is supposed to work in this Israelite people, a hope not just for them, but for the nations, a hope not just for them, but for the whole world through this promise made to Abraham. And and the Mosaic law meant to show God's holiness and a God who's worthy of worship that the nations might come. And yet, what it did is create hostility and animosity and pride. And Paul is simply saying to the Gentiles, listen, you weren't exactly a part of that. 
Could you have come in and belonged to the people of Israel? Yes, there were ways. God's heart has always been for the nations to come and worship him. I'll show that to you in a little bit in Isaiah. But the reality is, for most Gentiles, non-Israelites, they were simply, as Paul says here, far off from these things. They just weren't close to them. They were separated from Christ, the Messiah, because they were separated from all the promises and all the pointers and all the realities that would say there's a Messiah coming. They just weren't close to those things. They weren't part of the people or the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to all these covenants of promise, not knowing about them, not hearing of them, and therefore not able to care about them. And therefore, apart from all that, it gives this stark reality. They were without hope because they were without God in the world. Right? No God, no access to God, no way to know more about God and his promises means no hope in the world because this life is all you've got. Let me explain what I mean, kids. So when I was little, I was really, really afraid of the dark. Like really afraid and would lay there afraid for Sometimes I think hours. Maybe I'm making that up in my head. It felt like hours. And uh, well, the only things that were helpful to me were twofold. One, I knew where the light switch was. Right? So sometimes if I could get brave enough <laughs> to get out of my bed, I could go turn the light on. But the thing that was more helpful often was I would call it to my mom. Right? She's actually here today. It's funny that you're here. And she would come like 75 times a night, I think for different things that I would make up because I was afraid of the dark. I would just make up excuses like, what else, what other thing could someone need a mom for, right? That's what I'm gonna say right now, I'm gonna yell. <laughs> and I would be sometimes worried, like am I bothering her, am I annoying her, but she would always come, right? And that's what we have with God, right? We, we have sight and we have vision, but imagine kids, if I didn't have a mom to call out to, and imagine if I didn't know where the light switch was. I would have just been stuck in the dark without any hope or light or help. And that's what Paul is saying was true for these Gentiles. They had no hope to see, no one to call out to, no way to turn on the lights for themselves. And the problem in this church wasn't just the lostness of the Gentiles, but the animosity between these two groups. So the Gentiles were lost and couldn't see but most of the Jews were lost too, right? These Jews would call these Gentiles the, the uncircumcision. And that was a derogatory way to say, you're outside of God's people. You're outside of God's purposes. You're outside of God's promises. A word filled with kind of demeaning, hateful intonations. But Paul talks to them indirectly here as he's talking to the Gentiles and says that the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by these ones called the circumcision, which is really just made with human hands. In other words, Paul is saying, these Jews that would call you names, they don't even understand God's purposes or promises as they demean you. They thought they could be saved in their own strength by being circumcised. And they had missed that it had pointed to a bigger reality, to this coming Messiah, what all their sacrificial system was supposed to point to, what all these laws of holiness were supposed to point to, they had missed and instead were filled with pride and demeaning those around them. So here are two peoples, one closer to the promises, one further off from the promises, but both far off in their hearts with a deep, long history of hate and animosity 
and now they've been saved by grace and they're supposed to be a family, right? So how is that going to work? <laughs> what could make people that far off and that distant into one family? Here Paul tells us, brought near as a family in Christ. Point number two, read verse 13 with me. But now, right, he just said who they were. But now, this is just like the beginning of chapter two where he did something like this. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles were far off, but now they've been brought near in Christ. They couldn't be closer to God. Before, they couldn't be further away. Now, they couldn't be closer in. We've been brought near by his blood, that is, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. This is union with Christ, which means his death counts for our death to sin. We get his righteousness, and now we're in him with all the status and benefits of being in Christ. We're near by the blood of Jesus, not far off. And he goes on, verses 14 to 16, and says, he himself is our peace. He's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here we see the first two aforementions of peace, which I think is the main theme of this passage. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one that would bring salvation. He doesn't just bring peace. Paul says he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is where we're reconciled to God. Not just where Gentiles are reconciled, not just where Jews are reconciled, where mankind is reconciled to God happens in the person and work of Jesus. In Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we have rest for our souls. He is the place where God's wrath for sins has landed and the place where we find our righteousness. He is where we find peace in the world, shalom, right, this perfect rhythm and pattern and abundant life we were created for. He is our peace. Paul would say, do you know what the whole world is looking for? Peace. Do you know where peace is? Jesus. That's where you find peace. That's what you're looking for. That's what your heart wants. I don't care what ethnicity you are. I don't care what economic background you come from. Jesus Christ is our peace. So if you look around, this is not in here, if you look around at at this system trying to figure it out or or this system trying to figure it out or or this system trying to figure it out, they will all come so far (laughs) and then they will all fall flat because they don't have Jesus. They they can't get forgiveness. They can't get true soul level peace. They, They can't get forgiveness and grace and mercy and peace and justice and how that all works together because they don't get Jesus. But this is what they're looking for right here, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, this vertical peace that has been purchased by his blood brings horizontal peace. Jesus broke down the hostility between Jew and Gentile by his body broken. He says, I'm going to break hostility with my broken body. I'm going to kill hostility with my death on the cross. What does this mean exactly? There's a few thoughts. It's actually a lot of thoughts and a lot of commentaries. What I think it means most basically and profoundly 
is that we're no longer under the old covenant and required to become Israelites, part of Israel, with all the dietary and social laws that come with that, but instead, reality has come. The shadow has passed away and the reality has come. The the perfect sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice has come. And those things that before divided and created pride and hostility are done away with that there might be unity and peace with each other in Christ. And it might be in Paul's mind, I don't know if it's in his mind or not, but he certainly would have known it well, that they're literally in the temple, used to be a dividing wall, (laughs) said Gentiles stop here. Gentiles, stop here. This is only for this people of God. And so maybe he's even giving a symbolic reference here. That's all been done away with. There's unity in Christ. And by the way, you're welcomed into the presence of God as one people. This amazing transformation has taken place. The main point here is that the way that God solves their hostility is saying, you're one. (laughs) You're one. I'm speaking a new reality. The word for new here is a word that usually means like never seen before or brand new. And so Jesus says, the way I'm going to deal with this hostility is I'm going to make a brand new thing called the church. That's how I'm going to solve the animosity. I'm going to make you who hate each other and have hostility won by this gospel of grace. It's faith in the atoning blood of Jesus that brings you into the family of God as the perfect fulfillment, the beautiful fulfillment of everything that's been pointed to before this and everything that will come after it. So what is he saying here? Both brought near by his blood. Both reconciled to God in his body through the cross. Both brought from death to eternal life. And thus, one new man of the two. Hostility dying with Jesus on the cross as we realize the vertical peace, the peace we have with God through Jesus. He's saying, how can you not realize you're one new man and have horizontal peace by his blood. In other words, God is creating what we talk about a lot here, a blood-bought family through the cross of Christ from all sorts of different places and peoples, a people meant to show the world his grace and boast in Jesus Christ alone. That's what he's doing. That's what he's creating. Listen to how it happened, verses 17 to 18. He came, Jesus came And he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And I think what Paul is doing here is appealing to the Gentiles with this idea, but also for those Jews who might be listening in, they would have heard this and said, he's talking about Isaiah. That's what Paul's appealing to here. Listen to Isaiah 57, 19 as Paul is unpacking it. He says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. To who? The far and the near, Isaiah 57, 19. This passage in Isaiah is found in the context of a bunch of chapters that are talking about the coming Messiah, the Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. And in those chapters, if you want to read Isaiah like 42 and following, and even earlier than that, there is always a background of how God will bring not just the Jews, but the nations to himself. Let's give you a couple samples from the chapters before. Isaiah 56, 7. You'll notice this because Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just for Israel, for all peoples. 
Or Isaiah 55, 3 to 4. Incline your ear, come to me. Hear me that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I'll make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Not just for Israel, for all peoples. And I could go back through basically every chapter in Isaiah and read you texts throughout all the Old Testament and say, look, at God's always had peoples, the world on his mind. Right? We saw that in Genesis 12. I'll make you a blessing to all the nations. Not just this nation, all the nations. How does it end in Revelation? Right? All the peoples gathered around the throne. This is the story of the Bible. God has always had in mind the reality that salvation will come for all peoples through a promised offspring as the perfect king in the line of David, and there will be a new everlasting covenant in the blood of his Messiah. This is the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus came to fulfill this. And Jesus came and, and showed us what this is like, preaching peace to those who seem far off and peace to those who were near in his blood. You remember him, right, speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well. And his disciples come back, they're like, why are you talking to her? <laughs> why, why would you talk to her? We hate the Samaritans. Like, we call them dogs. We pray in the temple that God won't hear their prayers. And yet here you are revealing yourself to her, like the first person he revealed himself to as the Messiah, the Samaritan woman, right? We see him healing all sorts of Gentiles throughout the Gospels and then commending their humble faith. But we also see him, right, ministering, caring for, healing, and preaching to the Jews, right? He didn't just preach to those who were far off, but to those who were near, right? Jesus didn't cancel anybody. He didn't give up on anybody. He didn't throw anybody in the garbage and say, well, the Jews have been bad. They didn't get it, so now I'm going to go to, go to the Gentiles exclusively, or these are my people and I'm going to go to them exclusively. He goes to both, far off and near, a call to repentance for all and an invitation to the family for all. It's the work that Jesus does when he's here. He came in the flesh as the God-man and fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah, peace to the far off and peace to those who are near. He was a light to the nations, like Isaiah 49 says. And in doing so, he was creating one new people, Saved by his blood, both having fellowship with the Father by the Holy Spirit. Both called to walk in unity and nearness with the Father and unity and nearness with those in the family of God. Kids, I was trying to think of how to help you get this. Have you ever read a story or watched a movie and there are some confusing parts that you can really only understand at the end? Right? As you look back, you look back and you're like, oh, that's what was going on. I, I get that now. Oh, now I understand what was happening there. Oh, and you can see it at the end. And that's like this. God has always planned to send Jesus to save all peoples. Next week is Global Focus Sunday. We're going to talk about that even more. It was always in his word, but now he's making it crystal clear. He is showing them the end of the story and telling them that they are one new family in Jesus. There will not be two separate peoples that worship and follow Jesus. There will be one people that worships and follows Jesus. And who that one people is, is breathtaking. So read verses 19 to 22 with me for our last point here. One holy temple in Christ. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. 
You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here we see the full reversal of what they were to what they are. Now they are fellow citizens in the household of God. The apostles and prophets have taught this truth about salvation in Jesus and the word of God. They have shown from the Old Testament to the New that all of history was always moving towards the Messiah and all of history after is flowing out from the perfect work of Jesus. The church, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and race are built on that foundation. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So what did a cornerstone do? What was the point of the cornerstone? Well, the basic point of the cornerstone was to get it in the exact right place so that all the measurements, the whole rest of the building, would be built and measured and put in place right along with the stone. That's how the whole thing worked. Without a proper cornerstone, the whole thing would get off kilter. It would get get unbalanced. It It would break down eventually. And that's what Jesus is to the church. He determines everything in this place. He determines everything in this place. We just do what he says and go where he tells us to go. He determines everything. He's the cornerstone. And notice, this is not just any building. It's the household of God, family language, and it's the holy temple in the Lord. We have got to try to understand what this would have meant to a new church with Jews and Gentiles trying to come together. (laughs) It would have been a crazy thing for Paul to say. In the Old Testament, after the temple is completed, the Spirit of God comes and rests on the temple. It's like this climactic moment. And that temple was the place where God dwelt with his people and his people had access and fellowship with him. And then Jesus comes on the scene. You can imagine why this would have been offensive. And he says, I'm the temple. It's me. What was he saying? He's saying, That's all done as the way God's people have access and fellowship with him. Now, I'm the way God's people have fellowship and access with God. But now, amazingly, in Christ, by our union with him, we're the temple. (laughs) That's really offensive, right? If you think about all that was invested in the temple to this Israelite people, we're the place, the church, where God dwells with his people by the Holy Spirit. I'm assuming most of us are not Jewish. Most of us would find ourselves in this, this Gentile camp. We're Gentiles, and the gospel has made it a long way from Jerusalem to get to us. And what's amazing is that right now, because of the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we are closer to God than if we traveled all the way over to the temple in Jerusalem. We're closer to God. We don't have to make that journey. He's here. (laughs) He's with us. He's he's in us, and he's in us together as the people of God. And we don't need to go to a temple anymore to worship. We are the temple. Jesus is with us right now by his spirit. We're the household of God, a people saved by Jesus and letting him as the cornerstone determine everything we say, do, and live for. We're a new creation from many different ethnicities and economic situations and opinions about various issues. 
meant to show the world the picture of beauty and truth and goodness in the gospel, meant to show the world the love of Christ by the peace we have with each other despite our differences. When, when Jesus is praying in John 17, this was mind-blowing to me this summer, sitting on my patio, several times he prays for our unity so that the world would know that God sent him. What's one of the ways that the world's gonna know Jesus is real, Jesus was sent, Jesus really has a people, Jesus really loves a people? Our unity. How will the world know we're disciples of Jesus? By our love one for another. That's a high calling and a high privilege. So what's the takeaway Paul wants for the church in Ephesus and us? I think the basic takeaway would be know your profound peace with God by the blood of Jesus and live in profound peace with one another as a blood-bought family by the blood of Jesus. Now, as I talk about how to apply this, I'm not mainly thinking about the world out there. And I'm not mainly thinking about the world out there because I'm not responsible for the world out there. And I know my jurisdiction, I know my ability, I know my finiteness, I know what God's called me to. I'm talking about the world in here, this local expression of the Church of Christ. In other words, I expect it out there to continue to be in some measure prideful, prejudiced, divided, fractured. It actually always has been if you study history, just new ways to do it a little bit faster now. But I'm talking about what are we going to be like in here. And I'm not saying that to the disregard of out there. I'm saying that because I want this place to be so beautiful and good and compelling that people might go, what is that? What is that? They might want to come in to this blood-bought family and hear more about the Savior who rules over us. So certainly, this has all sorts of applications in our day and age. We could talk about an application for ethnic harmony. right? We live in a fractured world on this topic. And certainly, I hope, the church would be the place that has the best chance to say that all image bearers are worthy of equal dignity and care. Right? All have fallen short of God's glory and need of salvation. And in the church, this beautiful thing happens. Like I have more in common with my brother or sister saved by grace that are come from another ethnicity than I have in common with anyone else who might look or sound more like me naturally. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> you might not look or sound like me. We might not even be able to communicate, right? You've been on mission trips. You can't even talk to the people at the church you're at. But it's like, man, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. And we have more in common than a lot of people that look and sound like me. What an opportunity in a world that's filled with division and hate to love across ethnic lines because we are a blood-bought family. It's a sweet gift we can give the world. But that's not the only place division exists in the church. Right? It exists in a bunch of different places. It exists more and more so in regards to politics. Right? And it's not just down like party lines, like, oh, I'm this and you're that. Like sometimes it just exists with, hey, you don't talk about that enough. Or like, hey, you, you talk about that too much. Or hey, you talk about that too much and now you talk about it too little. Right, I've been following your feed and I'm upset with you on both sides, right? It just it exists everywhere. We're just trained to be upset. It exists about certain issues in the world. But maybe I'll just bring it most close to home because all those things are really easy to hear and we should address them and we should give the world a gift of like peace. Like look at what it can look like. But what about like in your relationships? Right, not, not with the talking heads on the news, 
not with uh, the political issues, not with all the big things out there that we want to talk about and act like those are our biggest problems, right? We all know in our own homes what our biggest problems are. What about in your relational conflicts? What about how you keep replaying that thing someone said or did in your mind over and over again, stewing on it, right, catering to it, pretending like it's not there, but you just come, it's like a guilty pleasure, right? Oh, they were so mean to me. You like it for some reason, right? It exists as you see that person, right? It could be in church, it could be at your workplace, it could be at that co-op, and you, you see him, and like the space is just big enough that you can go out a different door, right? <laughs> go out a different door, just don't have that conversation with them, don't just pretend it's not there, right? It, it's so easy and natural to simply not be at peace with one another, right? And it's simple and natural more and more in the relationships that are closest, right? Like, if you're married, where's the place where peace goes wrong first most in your life, right? If you have really good friends, like, where's the place where peace goes wrong most in your life? Like, parents and kids, like, anyone ever have some broken peace in those relationships, right? Friends, small groups, right? Bible studies, Someone says something in a discussion group and just eats away at you? Right, let's, let's let this hit the ground where it really hits the ground and where peace is really necessary, not just in the big issues out there, but in the broken places and shadows of our hearts. And yet, God sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, that we might have peace with him and with one another. So hear this exhortation as an exhortation of invitation. It's not an exhortation of condemnation, it's an exhortation of invitation. An invitation to remember today, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are far off, without God, having no hope in the world, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. An invitation to look around at brothers and sisters here and realize whether you like them a ton or not right now, they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You look around this room, these are people brought near by the blood of Christ, a room full of miracles of grace, a room full of people with more in common than you, than you could ever have differences with because of the blood of Jesus. An invitation to settle in your heart now, that our unity and our oneness in Jesus will always be deeper and bigger than any things that would try to divide or fracture us. I mean, settle it in your heart now. Get your heart ready for those conversations now. An invitation into the beauty of what it is to be the church, a people saved across all ethnic, economic, and social lines by grace, unlike any other institution or organization in the world. A people at peace with God by the blood of Jesus and therefore at peace and striving to maintain that peace with one another. A people with a beautiful opportunity in a broken, hurting, and fractured world to show a beautiful gospel that saves and unites under the blood of Jesus and in allegiance to him over any other allegiance that would divide us. A people that have peace with God are at peace in their hearts and overflow in that peace through repentance, say we're sorry quickly, through forgiveness, 
say, I forgive you quickly. And through reconciliation, you're my brother. You're my sister. Let's make this right quickly. Jesus is our peace. Vertically, horizontally, right? And we are his people, his temple. The Holy Spirit is here among us now. So what I want to ask you to do as we close and pray and get ready for communion is to ask him to work that peace in your hearts again right now. So let me pray. So Lord, remind us right now as we come to eat and drink with you exactly what this meal is supposed to remind us of, that we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, that this new covenant is in your blood, that we've been saved by grace, forgiven from our sins. Oh God, I just pray for my own heart. Lord, I pray for all the little, uh, the little ones in here, Lord, the, the babies that were just dedicated. I pray for their hearts someday. I pray for the oldest here among us. Lord, help us to trust that and believe in that and never lose the wonder of that, that we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us remember the other thing this meal is supposed to remind us of, that we're a family, that you've purchased not just individual people, individual peoples, but a people from across all sorts of social and economic and ethic lines to to make us into one beautiful picture of your grace and your goodness and the unity that comes in Christ. So Lord, right now I pray for our hearts. Lord, where where we've forgotten the amazing wonder it is to be at peace with you, remind us. And Lord, where right now we know, we know that we're not at peace with other people, maybe in our, maybe in our close-knit family, maybe in our friendships, maybe in this church, Lord, we're not at peace with one another, Lord, would you make it our goal to repent, to forgive, to reconcile, Lord, it would be impossible for the gap between me and another person to be bigger than the gap between me and you was. And you paid for that with your blood, Lord. Now you give us the invitation to put that gospel on display over and over again to a broken, hurting, fractured world. So God, would you do that right now? Would you show us where we need reconciliation and peace with one another that would overflow from the peace we have in our hearts with you? So come now. By your spirit, come as we eat and drink with you and pour out grace on this people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you're not able to come up or you just want to sit in your seats while you take communion, you can raise your hand right now and we will bring the elements to you. I'm just going to give three words here before we, we take communion. One, if you're here and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, you haven't yet been brought near by his blood, uh, I've been praying that you would, (laughs) praying that you would know him and love him and be saved by his grace. But if not, if you're not there yet, please don't take this meal. This is a meal for those who have been saved by his grace and brought near by his blood. But please talk to us. Talk to any of us after the service. We'd love to talk to you. Second, if you're here and there's some sin in your life that you're not yet willing to lay at the foot of the cross, you just know right now you want this sin a little bit more than you want Jesus. Please don't take this meal. We can't pretend to fellowship with Jesus while we fellowship with the idols and the sins in our life. 
Um, and so please let this pass. And again, talk to someone about it. Get, get help to bring it out into the light from the darkness. And if you're here and there's some bitterness, some animosity, some frustration that you have, especially with another member of this body, uh, we just ask you to decide in your heart right now that you're going to do what it takes to make that right. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to extend forgiveness. Maybe you need to have a conversation. Maybe you need to do things that will make this thing reconcile. But this is a meal meant to point to our unity in Jesus Christ. I say every week, we're going to have a lot of differences about a lot of other things, but this is meant to point to our unity in Jesus Christ. So decide now to make that right. If you're here and you're struggling against sin, trying to fight the good fight of faith, there's some broken relationships, but man, you want them to be reconciled and you're trying to move towards that. Uh, this is a meal of sanctifying grace. It's a meal for broken sinners who say, Jesus, you're the cornerstone. We want to walk in step with you. We want to do what you say we should do. We want to be who you say we should be. So help us. Give us grace to walk forward against in fighting our sin and reconciling our relationships. Give us grace. It's a weekly reminder that, hey, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here with you and I want, to, I want to help you walk forward. So you bow your heads, and I'll say the words of institution, and you can come when you're ready. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So talk to Jesus. Bring him your cares, your concerns, your sins, and then come up when you're ready.